Salve, buenos dias, and welcome to the second Egotistical Podcast. I'm your resident egotist, Tony LaRocca. The idea behind the Egotistical Podcast is that I want to listen to you and learn something about you or your favorite subject or film or philosophical belief. Whatever it is, I want to learn about it from you. My guest today is Connie Merriman. She's a licensed therapist, and we're going to cover a lot of topics, ranging from depression to trauma and addiction, along with some helpful techniques to overcome anxiety and panic. So hopefully, we can all learn something together. So, hi, Connie. (laughs) Hi, Tony. (laughs) It's so awesome to talk to you in person. We've been friends for, what, maybe 15 years now? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, this is the first time I'm hearing your voice. That's right. And and I've been to the city so many times and I haven't hooked up with you yet, but we'll get there. <laughs> Absolutely. For people listening, we met back in the Illustration Friday days. I don't know if even that's a, there anymore. It is. I checked recently for a client. Wow. That's good, at least. It was a site that would post a topic to illustrate every Friday, and then we would do our own artistic interpretation to the subject. So it was kind of like a Rorschach test. <laughs> And then we'd put our artwork on our blogs, and other people would comment on them if we were lucky. And then we'd go to their blogs and comment in return. And I made lots of great friends that way, whom I'll probably never meet. But you obviously were one of the best ones. Why, thank you. So, yes, we've been around since the ancient blogging days of the internet, before Facebook killed the blogging star. That's right. So, Connie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. I'm here today to talk about my work as a therapist. I got into that kind of sideways. I was actually an actress for the first part of my life. You know, Connie version 1.0 was an actress. Wow. Stage, TV? Stage. I I was doing stage and I was a theater major in college. I I loved it. It was really a great time. I thought that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. But then life being what it is, somebody came along and killed that joy in me. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, that's okay. That was a long time ago. But you know, this person made me question myself. One of those abusive relationships where I couldn't say anything without this person saying, well, you're an actress. How do I know it's the truth? And it just really sucked the joy out of it. I've had lots of actor and actress friends, and I never even thought of that angle. It made me question myself, am I just acting? Am I just being a drama queen? And I've gone on the stage since then a couple of times and and enjoyed myself. But at this point in my life, I moved beyond it. But while I was in college, I lived in a suite with a bunch of other wonderful women. And all of them, for whatever reason, were psych majors. And it drove them nuts because I would never crack a book and I'd get straight A's in psych. And and they'd be studying day and night and pulling C's. And I came to realize that to go from acting to psychology was really a lateral move. Because as an actor, you need to understand what's motivating your characters. It's all about getting inside and understanding why people do what they do. If you're any good at it, that's where it's coming from, right? Yeah, true. So it really was a lateral move for me to go from acting into psychology. So I bounced around for a a long time. I've mentioned to you, but your listeners Mm. don't know, I'm in recovery from alcohol. Well, that's very brave of you to talk about that. Thank you. I've got 24 years sober now. But after that relationship, I mentioned I drank my way out of school and Mm. bounced around for a long time. And I didn't really know what to do with myself. And, you know, I eventually met a wonderful man whom I married and loved me through the whole getting sober process and helped me figure out what it is that I wanted to be when I grew up. 
I'm still trying to figure that one out. I know, right? I sometimes think that maybe I should just quit and go back to flipping hamburgers <laughs> some days. <laughs> but but I, I know I love what I do. And so I went to school and I took an intro to human services course. And my professor there, I just loved her. And uh, she talked about what it was like to be a psychologist. And after a semester of taking her class, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I went on and I got my bachelor's in psychology with the concentration in forensics. I love studying the serial killers and mental health and the criminal justice system. And I thought about going to John Jay, but I'm up in the northwest corner of Connecticut. So that's kind of a long commute. Well, you just absolutely beat me to the punch because I was the first thing I was going to say. And hey, what was it made the joint to become a therapist? Was it percolating? No, that's fascinating. I never knew you had planned to be an actress. Yep. Yeah, that's what that's what I did from, from kindergarten until I was 20, <laughs> 20 years old. <laughs> I've dabbled here and there. I have a unglamorous IMDb page with some wonderful indie horror movies on them with great people. It's fun to put on a different skin, isn't it? Absolutely. We're talking, we're impersonating people. That's how we learn in the first place. Well, yes, good developmental psychology there. That was very profound. <laughs> <laughs> so, now I grew up Catholic. Mm -hmm. And like George Carlin said, I was born Catholic. Now I'm an American. They wanted you to go to confession regularly. I've gone to a chiropractor before and they're the same way. Like, oh, you got to keep coming back and coming back and maintenance is important. Do you feel that those who need therapy need it for regular maintenance or should the eventual goal like not to need therapy anymore? I think that depends on your theoretical point of view. If you're a psychoanalyst, you want them every day for years and years and years ad infinitum. <laughs> I'm more cognitive. I have a sort of a psychodynamic foundation, but I use a lot of cognitive behavioral. And basically what that means is I want to teach you how to help yourself so that you don't need me. You may need booster shots occasionally. Come back and see me if something's going on that you're struggling with and need help to work through. But I don't want you dependent on me. I'm, I'm all about empowering you to help yourself. Yeah, because let me say, I'm not against therapy. I mean, I've been in it from time to time. And then, you know, my therapists probably sought help on their own afterwards. But <laughs> I noticed there's so many commercial for happy pills and antidepressants, etc. And, and again, I'm not putting medication down, of course, because there's people who legitimately need it. Right. But it just seems more and more to me that we're expected to accept this breakneck stressful life rather than make the changes we need to eliminate the stresses and causes of anxiety. And of course, we can't change the world because our bosses don't give a rat's ass. They have right. their stresses too. Shit rolls downhill. <laughs> so do you have any insight into that? When it comes to medication, there are some people that need it. People with schizophrenia, people who have bipolar. Mm, I myself have bipolar yeah. and, and I'm, mm. I take medication for it and I'm well regulated. I also see a therapist. So I know from my own experience that it's possible to have these and benefit greatly. Most people who meet me never know that I have any issues at all, mm. um, which shows a great lack of observational skills on their <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I mean, there are Little people for whom medication is necessary, but for the mm. most part, I really want to help people learn how to develop their own coping skills so that they don't need medication or maybe they only need it briefly. But to me, that's more of a last resort. So what sort of areas do you specialize in? I specialize in trauma and addictions. 
I've got what's called a CCTP level one, which is just a certified clinical trauma professional. I practice what's called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I'm in the process of getting certified for that. It's kind of the gold standard these days for trauma treatment. And so my life is pretty filled with trauma. When I'm not working with traumatized people, I'm reading about it and studying about it and trying to improve my practice and have a wider knowledge base to bring different things because I don't believe in treating people like cookie cutters. You know, different things work for different people. And so I want to have as many tools in my toolbox to use as possible. So that that takes up a good deal of my time is, is work with trauma. And then substance abuse was actually not something I was going to work in because, as I said, I'm in recovery myself. I don't want it to be my entire life. But the first job that I was able to get out of graduate school was in a methadone clinic. Hmm. They were the ones that were giving people a chance who weren't yet licensed, who are working towards the licensure. I'm a licensed professional counselor. And so that's where I started my career. And I learned a great deal about opiate addiction while working there. Hmm. And I can't say that I loved the job, but I Hmm. liked it and really learned a lot. I had a heart attack, though. I remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When I was 45 and, and I was getting up every morning at 3.30 in the morning and wow. we think that contributed. It wasn't all of it, but it was a high stress job getting oh, up dear. really early in the morning. That's what I do. So, <laughs> like, yeah. like, so you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So one of the lifestyle changes I made was leaving there. Mm. And from there, I actually went to a residential treatment place of kind of famous place called High Watch Recovery Center, which is based in AA. As a matter of fact, Bill Wilson inherited it from the woman who owned it before, and it became the first rehab in the country and the only one that's tied to AA directly. Hmm. And so I worked there for a year until I went into um, contract work, which is what I do now, contract work and private practice. Do you find it hard to disassociate yourself? Like you said, you're steeped in trauma. Do you find it hard to disassociate yourself from that? It can be. Self-care was something that was really emphasized in my graduate school program. Mm -hmm. And I've taken that to heart. I've learned, especially after my own cardiac issues, that it's so important to take care of myself. So I practice Qigong. When I feel like moving, I practice Qigong, I should say. And I see my own therapist and I take time for myself every day. Self-care is a big part of it. Good for you. Yeah, I've got one room set aside in my house. That is my office where I work out of. And when I walk out of this room, I try to leave it in this room. Easier said than done. (laughs) That sounds definitely like a good practice. Yeah, it's important. There are some cases I've heard some of the most horrific things you can imagine, and they linger. But at the end of the day, I remind myself I've done all I can and I'm here for them. Some people have, I have my own cell phone for work separate from my personal phone. Oh, absolutely. My clients can text me in case of an emergency with boundaries, and and they're very good about respecting those boundaries. But if something comes up, they need just a quick five minutes of my time, I can give that to them. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Working here, working there, dealing with this, dealing with that. So you've worked with substance abuse recovery. Like, So what words of hope can you give for people trying to go through recovery or, or their families? That It's tough. It's a bitch, quite honestly. Addiction is a bitch. It's a bitch for everybody involved. But it can be done. 
and opiates. I'm not going to sit here and say yay methadone or yay suboxone, but when they first came out, especially methadone back in the 80s, the idea was that you had to be on it forever. Where I work, that was not the plan. The plan was we get you on methadone, we get you to a stable dose, not to where you're nodding out, but you get to a stable dose. And then as Mm -hmm. soon as you're stabilized, we start tapering you off so you can get off of methadone and get on with your life. And the last place I worked, they also, it's called MAT, Medication Assisted Treatment. There it was Suboxone. And it's the same idea. We get you on that so we can get you off of the heroin, get you off of whatever it is that you're using and get you on with your life. So I would advocate for medication-assisted therapies for opiates, certainly. There are other treatments, Vivitrol, which is an injectable once a month. And then there's also naltrexone, which helps with cravings, not only from opiates, but from alcohol, which is better than Anabuse, which is the one that if you drink while you're on it, you get sick. Oh, yeah. I had a friend in the Army who had, they made him go on that. And, yeah, that's yeah. definitely it's like they're punishing you for being alcoholic. And- so, I mean, there are these great medications out there that help, but really it comes down to, mm-hmm. in my experience, lifestyle changes and getting therapy, creating support systems and using your support systems. The biggest problem a lot of people have when they're getting sober, first of all, let me say that a lot of substance use is driven by trauma. Oh, Absolutely. People have this idea that people are getting hooked on drugs because they were using it recreationally. It was just fun. And next thing they knew, they, they're hooked. You know, that's certainly the case some of the time. So many people are there. They're judgmental. But these problems, the substance abuse yeah. problems, they a lot of people, they start self-medicating because their lives are so stressful or miserable. Or like you said, they've been through trauma. Right. And then their brains say, ooh, this is the new normal. And it just keeps recalibrating itself. And, you know, ooh, well, now I need a little more. And recalibrate itself, recalibrate. And then, boom, you have an addiction. Yeah, it's it's self-medicating. It's very much about self-medicating, whether it's that you have an undiagnosed mental health issue. Like in my case with the bipolar, I, I wasn't diagnosed until a couple of years after I got sober because one was masking the other or it's trauma based. A lot of the people that I saw at the methadone clinic, they actually got hooked because they got into a car accident or they were on some sort of pain management. And the doctors were really over prescribing the opiates, the narcotic pain medications. It was just insane how, how much they were prescribing for people. And then there started to be some negative pushback against narcotics. And all of a sudden, the doctors were just stopping everybody cold turkey. So then they were looking for the pills on the street. And the pills were so expensive that the next logical step was heroin. And that's how most of the people we saw got started was through some sort of pain management. It's like everything's stacked against you. Yeah. And then everybody says, oh, look at the junkie, yeah. you know, and they did it to themselves. And it's, it's not yeah. like that. Have, have a yeah. little compassion. And so you, you'll rarely hear me say addict or alcoholic, except if I'm speaking from a 12-step framework. We're trying, in the therapy world, we're trying to get away from that. Because if you think about that, that's very negative. Well, it's categorizing them. Right. And it's stigmatizing. It's labeling. So people with addictions, people with a heroin addiction, people with an alcohol addiction, cocaine addiction, whatever. And to label yourself like that, it's like you're defining yourself that way. Like that's all you are is your addiction versus I have an addiction or I have bipolar. I am more than my diagnoses. 
Yeah. That's definitely a great way to look at it. I never thought about it before, but yeah, it's putting people into boxes. Mm -hmm. And once you're in a box, it's either of your own making or of somebody else's. It's very hard to get out of. Right. So in terms of hope, I would say that there's a lot of hope out there. There are so many people who have been through it too. You're not alone. Whether you do a 12-step program, a lot of people have problems with 12-step programs because of the spiritual angle. Mm. They think it's a religious thing or a cult thing. And if you listen to the language of the steps, it says, God, as you understood him. And as you read the literature, God can be anything, good orderly direction. Mm. One person in the program I knew called his higher power Gus, guy upstairs, you know. <laughs> I read early on yeah. there was somebody that said that their higher power was their commuter train. Sure. They were in, working in New York and living in the suburbs, and their commuter train was the higher power because every day that train went past oh, the bar without stopping, which was more than you <laughs> could do. They could worship the head of lettuce named Ralph from What's Happening. You know? Right, exactly. Yeah. Your higher power can be anything. It's not a religious program, and I think a lot of people miss that. But again, it's not for everybody, and there are other programs out there like Smart Recovery, which is CBT-based. There are all sorts of options out there, but finding a group of people to meet with and to, to help support each other, I think, is really helpful. Good, because the brain loves addictions. Well, what happens with addiction is that, and people don't realize this, there's a biological component, there's a genetic component, there's an environmental component. There's a lot of things that go into addiction. But what happens is that once you're hooked, it gets put in the number one survival spot in your midbrain. So before shelter, before food, before water is that drug of choice. And it's not a conscious thing. It's not like you choose to make it that way. But that's why people will lie, cheat, steal, do whatever they need to do in order to get their drug of choice. It's because they have this drive in their emotional part of their brain that's telling them they have to have this. Yeah. They have to. There's no question. And they can't even think it through. It's just, I have to have this. Yeah. I mean, it's very sad. And that kind of leaves me now. I have to tell you, I took Psych 101 many moons ago. So I'm just completely talking out of my ass here. <laughs> But I always wondered, because everything in the brain is electrochemical. Yep. And like I said, the brain is notorious for becoming addicted to chemicals. Yes. So I've often wondered if one of the causes of depression could be our brains becoming addicted to the chemicals of negative and harmful thoughts. Because I found myself thinking, you know, it's almost a comfort, thinking the same negative thoughts over and over again. You're aware of them and you try to stop them and then bloop, they pop up again. Mm -hmm. And then also I wonder, people have often talked about social media addictions. Is it bad for your mental health? Because I can seek out things online that I know are going to give me ashita. Mm -hmm. You can find opposing political views or toxic comments or people who like the Star Wars sequels. Or, <laughs> and I know I'm not... I'm not like seeking them out to learn or to understand. I realize that I'm just doing it to get my daily dose of outrage and confirmation bias, which for it's really for no good reason. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of that with your patients at all? People just deliberately seeking out things either online or in real life just for the purpose of getting ideologically outraged. I've observed it, but you will be hard pressed to find somebody who will admit to it. <laughs> I'll admit I've done it. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I have too. Yeah. But I think in the seven years that I've been doing this, I've only met one person that admitted to any sort of internet addiction mm. or problems with social media. Well, not even on social media, but do you find that people just are deliberately seeking out things that upset them because they're used to being upset, whether it's online or not? 
Yeah, I would say that that is true. There was a study that was done that people are hardwired to the negative. Hmm. And they think maybe it's evolutionary. Hmm. So way back in the caveman days, we constantly had to be on the defensive scanning all the time for the dangers in our environments or we were saber toothed tiger meat, right? Yeah. And that has just stayed evolutionarily in our brains. And so the, the study they did had people calculating things, taking word problems, mathematical problems, word problems, hmm. and they would be the exact same word problem, but one would be worded in a negative way. And one would be worded in a positive way. And they found that people were calculating the negatively framed word problem hmm. faster than they were the positive. And, and it happened over and over and over again. We are geared towards the negative. So we're all screwed. Well, the, the <laughs> nice part is that there's this little thing called neuroplasticity. Hmm. And neuroplasticity looks at the neurons in our brain creating new neural pathways. So we can be as focused on the negative as possible, but we can retrain our brains to go towards the positive. So I liken it to going mountain biking because I'm out here in the country. Mm -hmm. Not that I ever go out mountain biking, but I, for some reason, that's the first analogy that came to my head years ago. Hmm. And I use this a lot with addiction, too, when I'm talking to people who are saying to me, can I get over this? Can I overcome my addiction? And I say, sure. It's like you've moved to a new area and you've got a mountain bike and you've decided that you're going to go off into the hills and explore. And so you go up the first day and you come to an area where you have to choose to go right or left. It's all grassy. It's all overgrown. But let's say there's a cliff in front of you. So you have to go one way or the other. So you choose to go to the left. And you go to the left and you really like the scenery that way. It's a great ride. So day after day, you just keep going up there and you go to the left and you beat down a path through that grass and created this pathway. Well, that's what you've done with your addiction or that's what you've done with your negative thinking is that over time, you've beaten down this neural pathway in your brain. And so that's where the strongest impulses are. That's where you're automatically going to go is towards the negative or towards your addiction. But let's say one day you get tired of it all. You're tired of being negative. You're tired of using your drugs. You want something different. So you decide that today you're going to go to the right. So you go to the right. And now that's not beaten down at all. And it's a hard path at first. There's no path there. You're beating down a path. But day after day, you go that way. And over time, you're going to start beating down a path as you go to the right as you go towards the positive, as you go towards abstinence from your drug of choice. And that old way of thinking, that old way of being, that left-hand path, the grass is going to grow up over that. And that's going to cease to be. And there's not going to be a path there anymore. And instead, you've created this new path. And that's what happens in your brain. You create these new neural pathways, and that becomes your automatic go-to. Wow, that's such a great analogy. Well, thank you. Because I've come up with something similar, but it's a lot less hopeful. <laughs> Something like you've built this house and you're trying to rebuild, maybe I just try to rebuild it too quickly, or maybe I'm trying to take that right fork too quickly, but it seems to very easily want to go to the left-handed path, as the Wiccans used to say. Right. <laughs> but it's definitely, it can be done, you know, it's, right. it's good to know. Yeah, you know, when, when we're born, we're born with billions and billions of neurons and synaptic pruning happens as we get older, as we make different choices. Some neurons die off and the ones that we use get strengthened. And they used to think that that was it. Once you hit adulthood, that was all there was. And your neurons were dead and your pathways were your pathways. But in the past couple of decades, they've discovered that's not true. 
that neurons do regenerate and you can create new neural pathways. That's why the brain can do such amazing things. With brain injuries, people come back from those. The brain learns new ways of doing things. And so it's entirely possible through neuroplasticity. That's true. That would be also something to focus on. Yeah. Think about that scenario. Brains can repair themselves after injuries. People can lose bits of it and the rest of it. So why not learn a better way of thinking? Yeah, I've done some studying of layman's level neurobiology, and it's fascinating stuff. I read a case. They were lovely people, and but there was just something slightly off about them. And when they looked in their brain, they were missing half their brain. And I can't remember if it was the left or the right half, but yeah. it just had never developed. It was just that hemisphere was about the size of a pea, but you never would have known it. It was only just something slightly off about them emotionally. And so that's how they figured it out. They did a brain scan and this person was actually missing half their brain, but their brain was fully functioning. And some people go around like that all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we won't name names. Though. <laughs> Something else I wanted to ask you is I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s and every show talked about self-esteem. Yep. And do you feel that people have an unrealistic expectation of happiness? That people thought, oh, they reach a certain age, you know, we should be much happier than we are because everything is telling us to be happy and feel like, like life for themselves let them down. Because it's almost like we're being told to chase happiness, mm -hmm. like it should be at a finish line. And instead, maybe I know it sounds Zen, but like a day to day acceptance and contentment, would that be a better goal? Yeah, I think you're talking about marketing. We've been marketed to death. Oh, absolutely. And what I mean by that is that we're taught to look for happiness outside of ourselves. And happiness really is an inside job. Hmm. Nothing can really make us happy. Certainly, there are things that can contribute to our happiness for a little while. Mm -hmm. But I think it is really about being happy with yourself and finding that contentment within yourself. There is a wonderful documentary called Happy, which is available on Netflix about an hour and a half long, and it looks at the psychology of happiness and how it is the internal intrinsic things that make us happy. Yeah. It's called getting on the hedonic treadmill where you're looking for all of these things outside of ourselves that are somehow going to make us happy, and they don't. Not as much fun as the hedonistic treadmill. Right. <laughs> Check that out sometime if you Absolutely, have a chance. Absolutely, yeah. It's a great no. documentary. Thank you. And speaking of that, you deal with a lot of patients, like you said, suffering from anxiety. Yep. So, and, and I know we've touched on some of them, but what coping skills do you try and teach them? Are there some basic tool sets that you try to work from? Because I liked what you said about the cookie cutter analogy, because one of my favorite analogies I like to use, and I have no idea who this comes from. If anybody out there knows, just let me know where you have two different people, if you're a father and you have a child, you have bad eyesight and they have bad eyesight. Mm -hmm. But your glasses aren't going to help their eyesight. Right. And you can sit there and you can give your glasses to the child and be like, but I just want to help you. This worked for me. This is what worked for me. Can't you see? I'm just trying to help you. But no matter what, your prescription isn't going to work for them. That's a great analogy. Yeah. I wish I knew who came up with it. I can't pretend that it's mine in any way, shape or form. But I'm sure there are basic tool sets. There are certain things. It's funny. It sounds so dismissive. One of my favorite things to say is just breathe. Mm, yeah. and, and I sound dismissive, but it's really not. Pranayama yoga. Hey. <laughs> well, right. But a lot of people not into yoga don't understand mindfulness. And mindfulness has a lot to do with calming the body down. So when I say just breathe, what I'm talking about is when we're anxious, when we're angry or when we're anxious, when we're upset, 
our sympathetic nervous system kicks in. And that's our fight, flight, or freeze, or fawn. They've come up with a fourth one now, where you just sort of go play dead. You, you go numb. So that's your sympathetic nervous system. And what happens when that ha- kicks in is your breath becomes rapid and shallow. Your heart rate increases. Your blood pressure goes up. And the blood stops going so much to the cognitive part of your brain, and it goes to the emotional part of your brain. So that's why you can't think straight. You're all emotion. And all of that is involuntary. It just, it happens just like that, except for your breath. Your respiratory system is both voluntary and involuntary. Thankfully, you're going to breathe whether you think about it or not. But if you think about it, you can control how fast or how slow you breathe. So when you're anxious, if you can focus in on your breath and you can slow your breathing down, that forces your heart rate to come back down. It forces your blood pressure to come back down. The blood starts going to the thinking part of your brain again. Your system comes back online. So when you've been hijacked by your anxiety, the key to taking power back, taking control of your body back is through your breath. Wow. So I have a couple of breathing exercises that I will give to people. One is just a simple cleansing breath if they're just noticing the tension building. So a cleansing breath is simply a deep breath in through your nose, and then you exhale through pursed lips with a longer exhalation. So it's like... And you can just feel yourself blowing the tension out and your shoulders dropping. But for people that are feeling more anxious, maybe they're on the verge of a a panic attack or actually in a panic attack, there's what I call five, seven, eight breathing. And what that is, is you breathe in for the count of five, you hold your breath for a count of seven, and you exhale for a count of eight. And you do that three times. And the, the effect is double with that. So what you're doing there is you're not only slowing your body down, taking control of your body back through your breath, but in the counting, you're taking your mind off of whatever it is that has you anxious and focusing in on your breath. So the effects there are twofold in helping you deal with your anxiety. Great. So those are a couple of breathing exercises. There's a simpler breathing exercise called box breathing or square breathing, where you inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, and hold for four. But that doesn't require you to think as much. And that may be good if if you can't think as much in the moment. If all you can do is breathe, then that's a good one to do. But if, if you're having some thought issues, if you're really stuck on whatever it is that you're anxious about, then something like five, seven, eight works better because it takes your brain off of whatever you're anxious about. And the thing with anxiety is it's usually something that we're feeling anxious about something that we did in the past or we're worried about something in the future. And it's not actually happening right here and now. So if we can ground ourselves in the present moment, that can resolve a lot of the anxiety. And so I teach grounding techniques as well. And one of my favorite grounding techniques that I can share with you, it's again, five, four, three, two, one. We're back to counting again. So if you're in the middle of a panic attack and you're trying to get yourself back into the moment right here, right now where your feet are, look around the room and name to yourself five things you can see. And you don't have to say it out loud, but make sure that you name it to yourself. So I see my laptop, my lamp, my desk, my water bottle, my phone, my mouse. Okay. What are four things I can touch? What are three things I can hear? What are two things I can smell? Or if I can't smell two things, what are my two favorite smells? And what is something I can taste? So it gets you in your space, in your environment, in your body, where you're safe. 
And the nice thing about that, five things I can see, four things I can touch, three things I can hear, two things I can smell, one thing I can taste. And that's something that you can do in a room full of people. You can be surrounded by people and do this and nobody knows. That's amazing. So those are just some tips and tricks. And if you're ever interested, I put together a packet of all sorts of grounding techniques beyond that one that I can always email to you that you can share with anybody that you know who's anxiety ridden. Well, I'm sure I could use it myself now and then. I put together a whole bunch of them because not everything works for everybody. Some people, they just need a paper clip in their pocket to play with or fidget with, and that helps them with their anxieties. Other people take a frozen orange, keep an orange in the freezer and take it out and squeeze it and feel the pain of the cold in their hand to get them out of their heads. There are all sorts of different things that you can do. And I've got them broken down by different senses as well that you can try. I'm just processing just thinking about it all. It's really amazing what we can do. And I try to give my clients as many tools as possible to deal with these issues. I want them to find what works for them and not to be reliant on me, but to find their own inner strength and learn that they can do these things for themselves and that they are empowered. I love what I do. It's not easy. You've heard me complain from time to time on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Facebook is the great spot to complain from. It, It is. I have to be careful what I say, but as much as I keep it private, I don't want to scare anybody off from therapy, certainly. But I do love what I do. And when I get up in the morning, well, I'm not a morning person. So let me put a caveat on that. But when I get up in the morning, as unhappy as I am to be getting out of bed, I'm not unhappy to be getting ready for the job that I love. I love what I do. I don't dread going to work. You're probably one in a million there. Well, I'm, I'm lucky. I chose the right career path for myself. Well, that's a good way to be. If I guess you have to find intrinsic joy in the doing. Right. And as you pointed out, it's not always easy. And especially with the trauma work, being able to separate from it is a challenge. But at the end of the day, I can put my head down on the pillow and feel like I made a difference in somebody's life. Usually. (laughs) (laughs) There are days. (laughs) Well, that's a very laudable goal. Thank you so much for coming and being so forthcoming and honest. It takes a lot of courage to talk about your own demons and your own issues that you've overcome. And I'm sure that gives a lot of strength to everyone else who's either feeling ashamed of their feelings or their problem. And there's nothing to feel ashamed of. We're all, I believe that evil in people is rare, actually. Mm -hmm. And I think that most people are doing the best that they can with what they have. And we all make really bad choices sometimes, and we've all done things that we wish we could take back. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between guilt and shame. And the way I learned it was that Mm. guilt is, I feel bad for what I've done. Shame is, I am bad. Mm. And so I don't ever want people to feel ashamed. Yeah. Because you're not bad. You just did the best you could. And maybe you made a mistake, but you know what? So did we all. It's what you do with it. You learn from it and you go on. Well, that's a beautiful way to look at it. And thank you for thanking me for my courage. But there was a time when I was ashamed of my alcohol addiction. And there was a time when I was really ashamed of having bipolar. And I talk about these things now with a great deal of comfort because I want to destigmatize it. I want people to know that you can overcome these things and you can lead very fulfilling lives and you can have everything that you want to have. It wasn't easy. For me, AA worked, but I know AA doesn't work for everybody. But the first thing I did when I got sober was I started therapy myself because I was drinking away trauma of my own. Hmm. And I knew that if I didn't deal with it, then I was just going to go back to drinking. 
And so those are the things that I would recommend for people beginning their journey. Don't be ashamed of it. There's nothing to be ashamed of. These happen to be our struggles. Everybody has their own struggles and these happen to be ours. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. And there's definitely hope out there and there's help out there. Don't let the stigma get to you. If I don't talk about it, then I'm feeding into it. So I talk about it openly now when appropriate to fight the stigma because you can have an incredible life if you let yourself. That sounds like a great point. You've been an amazing guest and I've learned so much. Oh, I'm so glad. There's definitely some things for me to think about. And hopefully if anyone else out there needs to think about them too, it will hopefully help them. Thank you so much for coming, Connie. Thank you for having me, Tony. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the second Egotistical Podcast. If you have a topic that's near and dear to your heart and you'd like to discuss it with me and the rest of the universe, please contact me at egotistpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, I did say that correctly. Or check out my website, www.egotisticalproductions.com. I'm Tony LaRocca, hoping you have a good morning, a good evening, and or a good night.